Welcome to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast, a show where we discuss what's wrong with healthcare and talk with innovative companies disrupting the health insurance marketplace. Join us as we explore strategies to help employers lower healthcare costs and build a better health plan. Now here's your host, Michael Maneri. Okay, hello, this is Michael Maneri, and I want to welcome everyone to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast. Today our guest is Ryan Day from HST. Ryan, welcome to the show. Well, Michael, appreciate you having us on. Looking forward to it. Very good, very good. Well, here's the game plan. So uh, what we do, we seek to do here on this show is is educate our audience on non-traditional methods to lower their healthcare costs and improve value for their employees. Sound good? Sounds great. We've got some ideas. I figured you would. So uh, to get us started, I'm going to read a brief bio about you and HST so the audience has some context about who they're listening to, and and then we'll go from there. All right. All right. Since 2009, HST has been at the forefront of providing reference-based pricing technologies that reduce healthcare claims cost. As president of HST, Ryan oversees operations and product development, bringing to HST an extensive background in finance, technology, and strategy. He has recently published in the area of pricing technology and is considered a subject matter expert in the area of price transparency in healthcare. He holds a Master's of Science in Banking and Financial Services Management from Boston University and a Bachelor's Degree in Finance from Cal State University, Fullerton. HSC's clients consist of health plans, TPAs, trust funds, stop-loss carriers, MGUs, special risk insurance, insurers, and self-administered group health plans and self-funded employer groups. That about capture it? That captures it all. All right. Love it. So, Ryan, just to, to get started here, why don't you just give us a little bit of background about yourself and, and how you got into the healthcare health insurance industry? Sure, absolutely. So, it's, it always seems like insurance finds you, you don't find it. And that was exactly the, uh, the context that I, I came from. I was done working on Wall Street uh, for a financial firm. And funny thing was, is our clients were hospitals. So, we actually uh, represented their investments and things like that. So that's where I really got an inside peek on how hospitals operate and what works, what doesn't work. And it was very interesting uh, in that perspective. So spent five years on Wall Street doing that. And then um, funny is a sidearm of the company was employee benefits. So they said, hey, you're interested. And so I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in taking a look. And so kind of that's where I got my first taste was in that piece of employee benefits where I really started to understand what people were dealing with when it came to healthcare costs. And sure. it was just interesting being my finance background. I was always trying to figure out where are all these numbers coming from. And it was, it was always like a moving bogey, uh, basically. Like I could never get a straight answer. So here we are today to be like, well, let's find, let's find out and how we can do this. And uh, our CEO, had, he had started his company back in, gosh, he had a company called TC3 Health. Uh, that was bought by Blackstone and MDON. And then he actually said, hey, do you want to you wanna come take a look at what we're doing here with HST? So that's kind of really where I got my, uh, my start and just got thrown into the fire, so to speak, saying, here's a new idea. Let's run with it. Let's start talking about healthcare at a macro level, and then we'll get into the HST product and service. Sure. So medical inflation has been rising at a, at a clip of you know anywhere from three to six times the rate of inflation for other goods and services for quite a long time now. And, you know, our industry has a pretty stock answer for why, you know, at a basic level, it's, it's increases in unit costs times increases in, in utilization. Mm-hmm. But with all the advancements in 
technology. You know, healthcare is one of the few goods and services where we're just not seemingly, we're not benefiting from any of the operational efficiencies that come with it. Tell me in your words, you know, what do you think's wrong with our healthcare system and why do you think unit costs of healthcare continue to increase at such a high rate? You know, it's interesting. We get asked that all the time from employers and just everybody wanting to understand, you know, what's going on. And it's, we, we like to say it's a buyer's beware market where folks have no idea what they're paying for. It's just like, here's the bill, trust us, we got a discount, off we go. But no one ever questions it. So it's the only industry like where, you know, you buy a mortgage or a car, you go and shop every single price you can get and you know what you're paying for. It doesn't work that way in healthcare. It's just submit the bill. Yes, we'll pay it. If we have a discount, what's it, what's it off of? That's what we've been seeing across the industry where it's you just talked about the trend in inflation. When everything keeps multiplying and going up, you know, and we've seen healthcare do that with the past 15, 16 years, mm -hmm. uh, where healthcare goes in one direction. And so we really started to say, okay, let's take it from a different perspective. We've seen what we've done for the past 15 or 16 years. Let's look at it a little differently and have a starting point. Um, and that's really what's, you know, kind of drove us to say, there's a lot of credence and credibility because I think, you know, people will talk about pricing transparency and it's such a broad term. But when you talk about reference-based pricing, I think that's what really where the rubber meets the road type situation where you're actually able to show some, some facts and some numbers re regarding that. That's a good transition. So Ryan, one of the deficiencies of the provider network model that that we've, we've talked about is that there's huge price variation in any given market with little to no price transparency or incentives for providers to, to one, compete on price and, and two, you know, help assist steer the consumer to best value options, which would be low cost, high quality. So, yeah. so you talked about, you mentioned reference-based pricing. Tell us what that is and how that is different from prices an employer might pay in a traditional HMO or PPO network model? Sure. So at a very high level, I would say reference-based pricing is a uh, reimbursement based on Medicare or cost information for medical services. So when you go in for an x-ray, for example, let's say you have a price of $10,000 that somebody's charging, but then all of a sudden when you're able to use reference pricing, you can say, oh, well, I can see Medicare pays $45 for that x-ray. So I want to give you Medicare plus, say, 40% or Medicare at 140. Extreme example, but as you can see, now you have a starting point and you have some value to what that x-ray is actually worth um, at a very high level. Got it. Got it. So, you know, with that, tell us a little bit about the HST product and service and, and what problem you guys are attempting to solve here. So I think the biggest one you've hit on is what are you getting a discount off of? Uh, lack of transparency is the biggest thing and why I'm here and what I'm doing today is really trying to solve that problem of, well, I did everything right this year, but I still got a 10% increase. Well, how do we address that? And so it's not, we don't continue with that same message going forward. Reference-based pricing, it's, you can hear different terminologies for you, value-based payments, cost plus, uh, reference-based reimbursement. So there's all sorts of variations, but it's still all the same concept using some sort of baseline, either Medicare or cost, to find that whole benchmark. Um, I would say our fastest growing block of business 
is what we call the reference-based pricing or RBP health plan. Mm -hmm. And that's where you keep a PPO for the the doctors, specialists, PCPs, your everyday um, transactions, and then actually going out with no network on the facility side. So open access, go wherever you like, but you're going to reimburse at a Medicare Plus type model for all those services, regardless of where your members are going to go at that point. You guys aren't a TPA, correct? Correct. We are not. We, we work with TPAs. They're our partners in doing all this. Got it. So talk to us a little bit about how you guys integrate with a TPA. Sure. So when a TPA typically says, I have reference-based pricing, what that means is typically they're using an outside party to do all of that. So when we integrate with the TPA, we integrate not only electronically with their interfaces so we can mm-hmm. pass claims back and forth, but we also give them the turnkey solution for the plan document language that is critical in supporting reference-based pricing, um, all the uh, key communication pieces that will be pushed out to members and employers, um, understanding the pre-cert process because we actually get involved at that point of view too where we're actually telling the facilities up front, hey, by the way, here's the price, and this is a reference-based pricing plan. So being able to integrate uh, with the TPAs is critical. And so, you know, you mentioned that, you know, your your most common, I guess, offering is is where there is a network for professional services, but it's, it's uh, value-based or reference-based reimbursement for any additional services like inpatient, outpatient. And you mentioned the, the benchmark, the example of 140%. So sure. is it is it the same, I guess, percentage added to the, the, the Medicare benchmark that is applied to all services? And, and who sets the reference percentage, you know, above and beyond that Medicare baseline level? So we give our recommendations uh, to the employer groups saying, I, in, on our block of business, we have about 400,000 uh, members currently. And I would say 99% of them are at Medicare at 140. I do have some groups that are Medicare at 150, but we're giving them our recommendations on where we think we should, they should set their numbers. And Medicare at 140 is um, our go-to number. And it's not like we just pick that randomly. Uh, we actually uh, talked to quite a few facilities kind of off record saying, hey, what are some numbers you're comfortable with? How can we make this work for both parties? And that seemed to be the consensus, 140 to 150. So that number comes off of feedback from the marketplace. And so is it that providers are telling you that, that yes, we can, we can operate you know, profitably at you know, 140% of Medicare? Exactly. It was, it was from the feedback from the facilities. Now, will all facilities be that way you know, where there is an operating profit at 140? No, not, not by any means. Uh, but we found for the majority of uh, facilities, that was the piece that seemed to work for them. Because there was added benefit, you know, to get them paid quickly, remove them from the collections game from the members um, and be able to accept those type of pricing. You know, and it's interesting because our fastest growing blocks of business are right now is um, facilities. And what do they do for their own employees and what are they doing to go direct to employers? So it's been very interesting from our perspective. That is interesting. Why? Because why? you would think that hospitals would really be against this type of methodology because, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, a Medicare plus 140% is likely going to be a lower level of reimbursement than a traditional network discount. Correct. You're absolutely right. 
but the the thing that's attracting them you have right now a network where it controls the purse strings like well i've got this many members so it's like having an intermediary or a travel agent you know we don't use travel agents very often um, especially the young generation it's go direct if i want to book a hotel i'm going to go book to the marriott the hilton whoever it may be now the facilities are looking to be able to do that as well where they can control their own destiny a little bit where they can go direct to the employer because it's their brand you know, everybody's going to the facility for their brand and how mm-hmm. good they are at what they do. And we're starting to see that, you know, that change of how can I go direct uh, in that regards? Because of the fact, you're right, you know, are you going to cannibalize your revenue? Correct. You're moving, you're moving from a higher price that you're taking now. Why would I take a lower price? And that's where those incentives become, you know, critical, uh, paying them quickly, taking them out of the collections game and a few other caveats that go along with that. Got it. So, and I think when you say paying them quickly and taking them out of the collections game, re- referring to the, the um, I guess the term that we've heard on other, from our other guests here on the show is revenue cycle management, where, you know, anywhere from, you know, 25 to 35% of their, um, their revenue goes towards, you know, paying people to, to collect the money, administer the collection of it, and actually go after people via collections. Absolutely. I think that's what we see as a, big pain point for them. And then what their average uh, accounts receivable, you know, what's their average days that they have that on hand. So that's an interesting uh, fact for them as well. Got it. So you mentioned that you guys get involved in the pre-certification process, uh, notifying providers ahead of time, you know, that the plan is only going to reimburse at a specific level. What happens in the instance of an ER visit? Because obviously there's no opportunity to talk to the the hospital in advance, you know, and if an employee needs to go, they're just going to go. So what happens in that instance in a, in a a reference-based pricing? Yeah, absolutely. That's a a great question. When we get asked all the time, uh, in that situation, the member is going to get their services rendered like they normally would. Um, and then we'll price the claims after the fact. Uh, and should we receive any, uh, pushback from the facility saying, Hey, I'm not accepting this Medicare plus, um, we have a patient advocacy center that will handle that uh, in that regards. So emergency situations are business as usual of what they're doing today on their current plans. Um, and just like a little bit of fact for you, um, on our book of business right now, uh, we have about a 98% acceptance rate. So we have a little less than 2% pushback um, that we see uh, just on how we approach things and deal with the facilities uh, in that regards. What happens for those 2% where... You know, you come back and say, hey, we're, we're going to reimburse you at this level as that's how this particular employer's plan is set up. And they come back and say, no, we're not going to accept that. Sure. And that's a, that's a great point. And we get asked that. I think with all our employer groups, we could probably spend two days just talking about this 2% um, in the balance billing. And I think one thing that gets lost in translation is employers now, their employees get balance billed now. Think about it. They have out-of-network claims. They have air ambulance, anesthesiologists, um, folks like that that are balanced billing their patients. And right now there's nobody there to help them. It's kind of like they're on their own to deal with it. From our perspective, we have a patient advocacy center that handles all communications uh, on the employee's behalf and the plan's behalf. And what we're doing is uh, when we do get that pushback, uh, we know 98% of the time the Medicare 140 is going to be a good to go number. However, with that said, it's not a end-all, be-all, one-size-fits-all. 
So our plans do give us the latitude to be able to negotiate uh, like a corridor between, say, for example, 140 and, say, 200 percent of Medicare. Mm-hmm. And so we've got some latitude to work with facilities. And I would say that's where our approach comes in to being collaborative with facilities saying, OK, let's figure out a number that works for both parties. If you're not willing to accept the plan's payment at 140, um, let's get something that works for everybody. And that's worked out very well. When you say, you know, you have, you know, flexibility to go, you know, up to 200%, ultimately, I mean, this is, a, this would be, this type of, of reimbursement would be involved in a self-insured plan. And so I imagine, you know, you would go, part of your agreement with the employer is um, the ability to have a corridor on some of these types of claims, or do you actually have to go back and get approval from the employer to reimburse at a higher level? No, you're 100% right. We have the corridor before going into this, so we're not having to go back to the plan uh, in that regards. You know, we, we've talked a, a little bit in concept about, you know, how this works, but how, how would this, um, this service benefit an employer? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, if you looked at employers, if we looked at their income statements right now, uh, I would assure you that salary is probably their number one expense. And two is uh, medical expenses. So it's funny, you know, when we, we do this analysis for employers saying, here's what you do today, what would it look under reference-based pricing? Mm-hmm. You know, on average, I would say, you know, just high level. If we looked at a group's total medical, medical spend, on average, we're saving an additional 20%. So a lot of employers are, you know, wanting to understand that 20% because that can be large numbers for a lot of folks. And I think the one thing uh, employers forget, yes, we are going to impact the claims. That impacts the members as well and what comes out of their pockets. And I think the big move for a lot of folks is to let's go to high deductible plans. Well, why is that? Because we're cost shifting. We're trying to change the game saying, let's, let's bring, let's pass some of these benefits on to the employees. So we're not constantly having to cost shift, you know, through contributions or Mm -hmm. benefit design changes. Let's do something different. So that's kind of what we see from our perspective. 20%, 20 is a big number. And so when you, when you say 20% savings, that is savings relative to traditional network discounts from carriers like Anthem, Aetna, Cigna, and United Healthcare. Correct. And then you, you got to remember, too, not only are we going to save on the claim side, uh, we're also going to have an impact on stop loss rates, definitely on the uh, spec and ag rates currently. So, you know, when you have a stop loss carrier saying, OK, here's what I normally do under, you know, a Buka, Blues, United, Cigna, Aetna type deal. Mm-hmm. Here's what I'm willing to do for reference based pricing. And, you know, on average, we're seeing between 15, 20 percent below uh, where they're coming in for carriers. So that's real co- tangible uh, for an employer group to see, feel, and touch versus me just trying to tell them, hey, I'm going to save you money on their claims. Absolutely. And so tell us, why would a stop-loss carrier give a 15% discount under a, a reference-based pricing reimbursement arrangement versus a traditional network discount arrangement? Because you got to remember from a traditional network arrangement, we call it top-down. You have a starting point and you get a discount, what it's off of, you know, you're not sure. And I'll give you a perfect example. I was just speaking at a conference and we showed uh, delivery, you know, inpatient stay delivery, normal. And we showed pricing variation that ranged from 4,000 to 40,000. So you can see the discrepancy in that, 
you know, a 50% discount is not equal across the board. So now stop loss carriers saying, hey, we have a benchmark, so we're going bottom up. Claim that's coming in, it's going to be benchmarked to, you know, Medicare or cost information. So we've got a starting point and they're willing to reflect that uh, in their rates. That's a really good way of thinking about it. Top down to, to bottom up. I don't think I've ever heard anybody put it that way before. But I guess another way to look at this is, you know, right now, employers have zero control over, you know, what they're paying for health, health services. And I think mm-hmm. the example you just gave, you know, um, a service that could range from $4,000 to $40,000, depending on where their, their employee goes. What this is really doing is it's an employer taking control what the reimbursement is going to be versus, you know, hoping. And I guess that's, that's the strategy today. It's hope, hope that your employee goes to a low cost provider versus a high cost provider. Yeah. And I, I I would completely agree with you because of the fact it's, well, well, think about it. You know, I think the, the discussions have changed where you, you know, you do have the networks and they are intermediaries but the funny thing is, is, you know, and I've had employer groups and consultants tell me this saying, I can't get the data. I can't get a hold of the data. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And it's, it's just a different way of operating in a marketplace when you can't see the data. Well, why is that? What are we not supposed to see type situation? And then they have the contract provisions, no audit rights, no right to recourse. So it's like too bad, so sad. And it's like, well, wait a minute. This is the actual employer paying for this. This is coming out of their bank account. And it's, I think that's been lost. Uh, we've just been so trained to just trust us. We've got your best you know, interest at heart. So I think employers are really starting to see that now. Absolutely. So <clears throat> if I'm thinking about you know, an employer group and we're looking at their claims and like, all right, well, we can anticipate you know, based on a a due diligence analysis, about 20% savings moving to, to this type of reimbursement model. But obviously one of the things that has, has driven healthcare costs, you know, higher is, is inflation. Mm -hmm. So under a reference-based, uh, reimbursement model, um, how does inflation work? That's a, that's a great, uh, great question. Um, for reference-based pricing, we typically see one to 2% inflation, because you are, you are tying to Medicare on what they do. So if they raise or they lower rates, your rates are now tied to something. I would say, you know, you had mentioned earlier, you see three to three to 10%. Um, we have actually a, a, a case study that shows fully insured, self-funded, and then RBP as well. And we, we saw the self-funded trending at about six to 8%. And that was on a block of about 200,000 employees. Mm-hmm. And then fully insured, I think, was trending a little where in 12, 12% range. Now, can that change depending on what tools you have in place? Absolutely. But it gives you a nice idea of what we're seeing um, groups moving to. it. When you move to an RBP type model, now it all of a sudden becomes budgetable um, for CFOs and employers saying, now I can understand and plan what my medical expenses are going to be within a certain degree versus a wild swing. Um, at the end of the day, right? That and so and so, what's Medicare? You know, traditionally trending at right around one percent is where they trend at one percent. So that's a that's a big deal. If you if you play that out or, or forecast it over a ten year period, one percent trend versus you know six percent trend. Um, 
you know, and in fully insured 12%, you're going to see a big delta over time. Hands down, hands down. Like you said, now it's, and it's interesting. We just had an employer group move to this model and they've been on it for about a year, about a thousand employees. And I think they had billed charges of a little over $8 million and the plan ended up paying like 1.5 to 1.7 million uh, is what they paid. Well, that money allowed them and they told us this verbatim, the CFO, he's like, listen, we just went and bought another company because we were able to do that with the money that we saved uh, and when it's used for something else other than our medical expenses. It was just a real good feel, feel good story type situation. That's great. That's, that's, that's great. And, and I think also just the numbers, eight, <clears throat> eight million in bill charges. And, you know, I think you said something around 1.5 in, in, in actual paid. I guess that just goes to show, you know, how inflated a lot of the bill charges are, you know, relative to what things actually cost. It's a buyer's beware market out there. That is the best way I can put it to you. Not everybody is created equal when it comes to medical expenses by any means. Someone can walk in with one ID card, it's 5000 for them. Someone else can walk in, it's 500 for them. No rhyme or reason, same procedure. So that's how we like to say it, buyer's beware. Yep, yep. So let's... I can see how, how this would benefit an employer. Let's talk about the employee perspective. You know, um, most employees, you know, you're on a, a PPO network. Um, you're used to, you know, coinsurance deductible and your EOB and, and, you know, handing over your ID card that says, you know, has one of the bukas as you alluded to. So how does it work from the employee's standpoint? How does it look and feel? And I guess, the best way to do this is to maybe give us some examples, you know, in, in, in a hospitalization or even just going for an x-ray, seeing a specialist, you know, how is it different under this, this model? Absolutely. It, you know, realistically, it should be um, pretty similar to what they're doing today. I would say communication is key uh, when rolling out reference-based pricing. Um, I would say we harp on that all day of just over-communicating and communicating throughout the year to make sure the message is coming across. Because remember, you have a PPO for your physicians and your doctors. So you present your ID card, same concept. Um, they're gonna call insurance, make sure you're good to go. And you're, they're gonna take your, you know, let's say co-pays or things like that and submit the claim back to the TPA to handle. So really no change than what they're doing today. Now, when it comes to the facility side, same concept. They're going to present their card, um, take co-pays if necessary, and get their services rendered. Um, where the where the change could be, as we had talked about earlier, is if a facility uh, doesn't accept the plan's payment after the fact, uh, and that's where you know a balanced bill situation could uh, become more of an issue. And that's where education is key. To say, hey, you need to drive all the employees to the patient advocacy center. That's what they're here for is to, you know, help and guide the member. And we're going to take, you know, all the heavy lifting and reaching out and getting this resolved so the member doesn't have to. Got it. So, so the patient advocacy center basically, you know, takes over the situation, you know, works to negotiate the, you know, any balance billing situations, uh, you know, with the uh with the facility in that case you know you guys have a corridor that you're allowed you know to work with and so you know basically the employer will pick up the difference you know within that corridor or is it the stop loss carrier 
I guess it depends on the on the specific deductible, right? Correct. Yeah, it's definitely going to depend on you know the deductible, and, and you know that's why uh, the stop loss carriers you know obviously love seeing us because they see less and less large claims because now they're being benchmarked to something versus the get the gamesmanship that goes on you know with the discounting, especially when they become you know extremely large claims. Yeah, and I guess this may be getting into the the weeds a little bit, but is is the agreement on the back end structured such that, you know, the employee will not be balanced billed and on the back end, either the employer or the stop loss carrier after the, the patient advocacy center, you know, does its best to negotiate, picks up the rest. So when we, when we have the uh, patient advocacy center uh, making those inbound calls, our first stop is to help them understand the plan. And a majority of the time, the facilities will be like, I understand that makes perfect sense now. Got it. I'll write it off. And so they'll reflect that. Mm-hmm. Uh, other times they'll want, you know, like you said, they want to negotiate where we will get of a letter of agreement saying, hey, this is going to satisfy no balance billing. So the plan will uh, issue additional payments. And so there may be some additional out of pocket uh, for the plan members at that point uh, in that regards, if there's a negotiated agreement. Got it. And, and that would just be additional d- deductible or coinsurance. Correct. Exactly. Okay, got it. Now you you had uh, I want to go back to something you said earlier. I made a note here that you know you talked about what was really important was the language in the plan document. So tell tell me about that and why it's so important. It's critical. If we were to look at uh, plan document language right now for your average group that's non RBP, you could drive a truck right through it. It is protective of I would say the networks and the hospitals. So the plan language when you move to uh, RBP is protective of the employees in the plan. So we've kind of flipped it, you know, on its head, you know, really defining how claims are reimbursed, you know, what clean claims are, um, ID card language that goes on there to communicate with the facilities, EOBs, kind of all that stuff is absolutely critical uh, when doing reference-based pricing. Is that to say that Plan document language that's in a, a regular contract with a with a network in place, you know, really doesn't protect the employer. Correct, and you know, you you see some of those points being no audit rights, no right to recourse. I think a perfect example is there's a facility out there, and I won't name names, but that's making you sign attestations saying, "Well, you can't see our agreement. Sign here, and you have to give us ninety five percent of billed charges." that doesn't leave you much room for negotiation or trying to change the plan document to protect the plan and its members. And I, <laughs> and I do know exactly what you're talking about. Sure. All right. So I, I, I get that. So, so the plan language is important because it's, it really, you know, the employer is setting the reimbursement level and the plan document is, is critical f- um, from a negotiation standpoint of being able to negotiate uh, that reimbursement, you know, with the providers and facilities. Exactly, because think about it this way. The plan holds all the cards at this point, exactly how they're supposed to be fiduciaries. And, you know, realistically, they're actually being true fiduciaries when, you know, going to an RBP model. Because I asked an attorney, you know, off record, and I said, well, if you're under a PPO model, are you really being a plan fiduciary? And they're like, well, you know, that could be argued both ways. And I said, I agree. And so it's it's just been interesting uh, seeing how the tides have changed, you know, and how you set up your plan document 
to protect both the plan and its members. I see. So it's almost like it's a little gray. You know, are you are you being a true plan fiduciary with a with a PPO network because you're not necessarily advocating on behalf of the plan members to get the best deal? No, you're not. A lot of times what we hear is it's easy. I'd rather not move because it's it's more work or things like that where it's like I don't know if that's the right attitude to have uh, in those regards. Um, and, and it's funny, I get asked, you know, you know, what type of clients do you have? Or, and it's always, I tell, I tell folks, I have the clients who want to manage risk. My clients are not check writers that just write checks and hope their costs go down. They really want to understand and say, hey, I've got a plan for the future. Here's what I need to do today. Got it. All right, Ryan. So to date, we've talked we've talked about a number of things that I think would an employer would find interesting. You know, twenty percent uh, cost savings on their claims, lower medical inflation of one percent relative to to six to eight percent on an annual basis. So, what's the cost for an employer to sign up with HST in the context of you know right now they're paying a, a third party administrator uh, a fee as well as they're paying a cost to rent a network. You know, what does it look like? when they're using HST? Sure, absolutely. So first and foremost, you know, how we know, uh, I guess, Bucas, Blues, United Signas, for their network, they charge like a PEPM fee. We do the same thing. We're on a per employee per month fee. Uh, so PEPM. So you have your TPA fee. Um, that's a PEPM. Running the networks, as they say, is a PEPM. Mm-hmm. And then you have us, that's a PEPM as well. Uh, in that regards. Now, there are other RBP vendors out there that do it differently. There's different flavors. Some charge a percentage of savings. Others charge a percentage of build charges. So there's different charge for their reference-based pricing services. So employers just need to be aware. So on a, on a per-employee, per-month basis, when they add in the cost for HST, is it generally going to be more than the cost for a TPA with a regular network, or is it going to be about the same? It should be either equal or less uh, in that regards. I've, I've seen per employee per month all in, including our services, you know, range from $30 PEPM, you know, to as high as $45 PEPM, obviously dependent on the size of the group, mm-hmm. but it gives you an idea of where that's sitting. You guys have been been around long enough. Do you keep any sort of return on investment information, you know, for to discuss with people who are interested? We do. We absolutely do. So, you know, we, we have a, not only what our, what our employer groups are doing and, you know, prospects and things, people who are wanting to, yeah, this sounds all great, but can I talk to somebody who's actually doing it? Right. Um, and that actually adds a lot of validity to that fact. And we have some case studies uh, as well that can show the same thing uh, that's happening for groups. Absolutely. Perfect. So in, in your mind, you know, who is this a good fit for? And, and, and also who's it not a good fit for, you know, are there any employer size or product or funding limitations? You know, who it's not for is is folks who can't fund claims weekly because, you know, you heard me state before we want to pay facilities quickly. Mm -hmm. If someone's having trouble funding a weekly claims run, probably not the right fit uh, in that regards. You know, we have all walks of life, you know, from employer groups, you know, whether it's, you know, white collar, blue collar, you know, we have everything in between. 
And I would say the one thing that they all have in common is they want to manage risk. They understand we can't keep going down this path. We've done it 15 years in a row. What's going to change if I move to a carrier that has a little higher discount and then two years later, I move back to that same carrier? Mm-hmm. So it's what can I do differently um, or do I just stop offering benefits altogether and go to an exchange? You know, so it's, it's folks that are always wrestling with those questions to say, I need to understand my costs. It's the only thing I don't understand, you know, and then, you know, once again, the amount of dollars that are at stake, you hit upon it is if like, let's, let's take a, um, a cabinet manufacturer, you know, let's say we save you $4 million. Well, how many cabinets do you have to make to come up with that $4 million? A lot of cabinets. Exactly. Now you have to put it in those kind of terms for people to start to realize, um, oh, okay, there's a different way of doing things. Mm-hmm. So, and as I stated before, my clients aren't the clients that want the easy button and saying, I want the same thing, business as usual. I don't want any noise, no disruption. It's here you go, keep doing what we're doing type situation. I don't want any extra work. Those are definitely not my clients. Um, it's the folks that are a little more progressive. Uh, in that regards. Yeah. The, the, the people who are probably tired of the status quo. Exactly. All right. So, um, how many employers have you, have you implemented this service, uh, with? Currently we have, uh, roughly about 500 employers that we're doing this with. Got it. And any specific industries or sectors where you guys are having a lot of success? You know, as I stated, the facilities, uh, being definitely one of them. So the hospital industry has become a big one. Uh, I would also say, you know, municipalities have really picked up uh, because once again, it's taxpayer money. Mm-hmm. So what you and there's other things to save taxpayers in the cities and counties and states, they're all starting to look at it. So that's really become another market that's really picked up uh, over the past year. When you're presenting this to an employer um, or an employer's broker and, and they're, you know, looking at it and they're evaluating it, what are some of the obstacles you've encountered to an employer saying yes to moving forward? You know, I think some of the biggest things we run into is, well, how much work is this going to add for me type situation? Mm-hmm. You have the folks making the financial decisions, CFOs, CEOs, usually are pretty extremely on board. And then you have, you know, HR folks who are obviously looking out for the employees like, well, how am I going to communicate this? What kind of noise are we going to get? How much extra work is there for me? You know, that type of thing. Uh, We see, you know, where there can be some objections. You know, executive management may not be on the same page. And then obviously, you know, folks always want to understand the balance billing aspect. They don't want employees sent to collections, things like that. You know, are there any improvements or enhancements to the product or service that you're working on uh, for the future right now? Or or in general, just anything you're, you're working on in the business that you're really excited about? Absolutely. I would say some of the things is working with facilities hand in hand, eye opening. Uh, We do have a consumer app that is released so we can get uh, that into the hands of the members faster uh, so they can see exactly what the plan is going to pay, what their out of pocket is based on, like, say, a Medicare Plus number. So really getting them not only price, but pushing quality as well. And that's the next evolution that we're seeing is price and quality married together. Now you can start tailoring where folks are going to go. Because what we've seen specifically in California, the higher the price, the worse the quality. And that was an actual study done by the state of California. So I think people you know, redoing those perceptions 
will will definitely help uh, all of us going forward. Got it. So, Ryan, if there was one question that I should have asked you, but maybe I didn't, why wouldn't we do this? You know, why why should why wouldn't why would anybody not do RBP? And I would I would say to you because it is a change for folks. You know, to we've done this thing for 15 years, and now you're asking me to change, and it seems like a big leap of faith uh, in that regards. And so it's it's something that we do within our power to you know give you not only the familiarity of how this is going to work, how it works in your area, how it will be communicated to your employees. You know, if things don't uh, pan out where balance billing does happen, then what do you do? What are the steps? How do we communicate all along the way? And I would say that's the the biggest thing um, when moving to this type of model is making sure everybody is on the same page. I'm not here to say, oh, this is going to work 100% of the time. This is the greatest thing ever. You know, I'm go- we go into this eyes wide open. Everybody knows uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm-hmm. And so we all make decisions together. But if we're all on the same page, it makes everything run a lot smoother. That includes the consultant. That includes the employer and us. So we all know expectations because the last thing we want to happen is someone to go, well, you told me X and that's not it. So we want to make sure that everybody uh, understands, you know, the nuances of how RBP can work. Sure. Sure. And I, I think, you know, that's the right way to do it. And, and having the, you know, plan document contract language, be crystal clear on how things, you know, functions, uh, you know, is, is, is critical to that. And as well as the employee communication, you know, piece, but Agreed. I think it's a great question. Why, why wouldn't you do this? Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, you know, hopefully this episode gets, gets some people to start thinking about that. Absolutely. So, so Ryan, how can people interested in your product and service, um, you know, get more information about HST? They can go to our website, uh, www.hstechnology.com. It's got, you know, great information, white papers, articles. Um, there's a, actually a, a link in there that you can actually go to that will, you can fill out information saying I have further questions and then someone will reach back out to you uh, to get in touch. This has been great. On behalf of uh, our listeners and myself, I, I really want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. And uh, to our listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode of of Reconstructing Healthcare. I appreciate you having us, Michael, and uh, thanks again. Oh, you bet, Ryan. You bet. It's been fun. To our listeners, wherever you're at, we hope you have a great day, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. If you like what you heard here, please do subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Google Play so you never miss an episode. If you're interested in continuing the conversation, please visit us at www dot reconstructing healthcare.com where you can access the show notes for this episodes and links to hst's website and contact information thanks again for joining us and see you next time on the reconstructing healthcare podcast